of all four of the angels. And then Gabriel means warrior or mighty man of God. Yes. Would you like me to? Oh. Uh, okay. <laughs> Somebody said, can you say it again? Yes, I can. Uh, <laughs> Uriel, God is my strength. Raphael, God heals. Gabriel, God, the word Gabar, uh, Jesus is called El Gabor over in uh, Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 10 also. El Gabor mean, is translated mighty God. But both of those words mean mighty. One of them means God and the other one means man. El Gabor, mighty, mighty God man. That's the name for Jesus in Isaiah chapter 6. And that's 700 years before Christ was born. So Gabriel, uh, the mighty one of God, or the warrior of God, and then who is like God, Michael. Uh, if your name is Michelle, it's also the same. So there's a Jewish prayer that asks for these four archangels to go before us, behind us, beside us. Uh, there are more angels and, and angelic beings and demons and demonic beings than we know anything about. When you read this first part, the opening of Paul's section on the armor of God here, you'll come to a passage where he names four. He always names four when he's talking about both the good and the bad in the spirit realm. Here he's talking about the bad. And four is the universal number. It's like the world number, north, south, east, west. Um, I, I, when I studied Revelation with you years ago, I gave you a list of all the numbers and their meanings. Um, if you're interested, uh, you can email me at mbarrier. Uh, you can get my email from whatever his name is here, the, the pastor. Uh, Cindy's husband. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can ask Carol. And he's got my email address. And if you email me and ask me for copies of my books, I will send you electronic copies of the books. Uh, they're free if you ask for them electronically. You just can't share them with anybody else. You can run off one copy uh, if you want to hard copy, you can send me 30 bucks and ask me and I'll send you hard copies. Uh, but it's better, I think, to get them free. Uh, I'm always happy to send them free. Sir? Freddie uh, had his demon in Baal, I guess. Yeah. Or, or the French one. Yeah. Baal Zebul. And Beelzebub. Uh, sometimes spelled B-U-B. Uh, Baal Zebub, or B it can be spelled B-A-A-L also. Uh, Beelzebub means Lord of Dung. It's a put-down name for the devil. Beelzebul is Lord of Flies. If you've read Golding's Lord of the Flies, you know about the nature of man. Uh, that's a book that's worth reading more than once because it teaches you what man becomes when he's left alone. And God doesn't appear to him or deal with him. So Baal-Zebul or Baal-Zebub, both are negative names for God. Uh, in the Old Testament, they worshiped Baal, and Baal was a fertility god, sex god. 
And then Ashtarte, or Ashtart, was the female counterpart to him. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but... Okay. Yes? Uh, well, these... Yeah, we don't know all the function of them. We know Raphael was the healer. But this one we're not told much about. It's just his name and the fact that his name means God is my strength. So he's a powerful archangel, but that's all we know. I don't think it, I don't I think the Jews do that, but I don't think it's necessary. If you ask God to send angels to protect you and to help you to be with you, I think he does that anyway. Yeah, I think he expects us to ask for angelic help. Um, but all these, all these beings here are just the beginning of a hierarchy of angelic beings. We don't know much about them. The Apostle Paul says the reason women have to cover their heads in the church, I don't know if you've studied 1 Corinthians, maybe we could do that sometime, but in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian people were, being, uh, were winning some of the women who were up on the mountain during the time of Paul, who were worshipers of Aphrodite. The Corinthian church, the Corinthian people, were known for the worship of Aphrodite. I saw a mountain for 30 miles driving down from, uh, um, from uh, Athens to Corinth. And this mountain is the mountain that is called Acro-Corinthus, the high Corinth outside of town. During the time of Paul, the Temple of Aphrodite was built on that mountain. The ruins are still there. And there were up to 2,000 prostitute priestesses up on that mountain. I call them priestitutes. You know, that's an abbreviation. Uh, these were people who, there were men there who were homosexuals. There were women who worshipped homo and heterosexually. Men did both. And they had gongs and cymbals that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians as timers to switch partners. And this is the kind of worship that went on all over the ancient world. But, but uh, the, there are demonic beings behind all these so-called gods and goddesses. Baal is a demonic being behind his statues that they worshipped. Uh, they, they worshipped, uh, they did phallic worship in the ancient world. Phallic worship is the phallus is the male sex organ. And they worship that. And there are gods that are little squat gods that have penises bigger than they are that have been dug up. You know, these are things that people actually worshiped. And they, they would have sex before these gods to make their crops produce. And that's probably enough on that, okay? But the whole ancient world did this. This is what people did. They did this in Ephesus, they did it in Corinth, they did it all over Israel. The whole Old Testament's filled with it. If you saw a picture of Baal, the statues, you can look them up online. I don't recommend it. You'd understand why they are the way they are. Likewise, Astarte. Uh, Astarte, Ashtart, Ishtar, Isis. We get the Easter and the bunny and the eggs, the fertility stuff all comes down to us from this kind of worship. 
And so there are demonic presences behind these beings, behind these gods and goddesses. Uh, demons that want to inhabit these beings because they're being worshipped. Uh, I don't know if you've studied the prophet Hosea. Uh, Hosea married a woman named Gomer who was a prostitute because God told him to do it. She was an adulterous woman and she was committing adultery when he married her. I mean, that's, she was in the habit of it. And he paid the price for her. And then when she went back to her lovers, he had to go buy her back from them. It's a picture of God and Israel. You know, God had to redeem Israel. Uh, but Gomer, his wife's dad's name, you can just read the scripture and just read over these names, but the name Deblium, which is her dad, means two angel cake, uh, two uh, uh, raisin cakes. And it sounds crazy that you would name a kid two raisin cakes, but raisins are seeds. And so it's part of the fertility worship. And they would make a big cake to worship the sun and a smaller cake to worship the moon. And so his name actually was a name that came out of the worship of the gods, the worship of the sun and the moon. I think it's interesting that back in Genesis, God never refers to the sun and the moon by name in the first chapter. Remember this? When he creates the sun and the moon, what's he call them? The big light and the little light. Because if you use the names, sun and moon, Shemesh and Yarach, people worship those in the ancient world. So he didn't even call them by name. He doesn't want them to be worshipped. They're just a big light and a little light that God created to rule over the day and to rule over the night. You know, so all these, the stories of, of antiquity, the gods and goddesses, there's something to them in the spirit realm. And we really don't know that much about them. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, in Colossians 1.15, talking about Jesus, the highest teaching about Jesus in the Bible is right there. He says... Jesus is the image of the invisible God. See, you can't make an image of God. But here is Jesus, the image of the invisible God. See, we were created in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. And he goes on and says, By him all things were created. Notice the four here. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And in him all things hold together. He always names four. That time he named it four twice. Visible, invisible. You know? The things that you can see, the things you can't see. Powers, dominions, principalities. We don't even know what those are. We know what a throne is. But these are living thrones. Thrones are set up in the Bible, and God rides on living thrones. They're called cherub in Hebrew, cherub in English. But when you think of cherub, you think a little baby with wings. You know, that's not a cherub. That's medieval. A cherub is a tornado of fire with five faces, a bull, an eagle, a lion, and a man. We know about these because Ezekiel tells us about them. We know about them because some of the law tells us about them. But there are many different kinds of cherubs. There are many different kinds of seraphs. 
Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord, and he sees these seraphs up worship. You know, uh, one of my students asked me, are these deputy seraphs, or, you know, are they county seraphs? No, uh, no, they're not. They're, th these creatures are giant winged dragons that breathe smoke and fire. These are the spiritual reality behind the myths and the stories. And Isaiah sees them. I looked up the word seraph. I found out that the, the verb form means to burn with fire, and the noun form means a snake. And these beings are serpents with feet, Isaiah says, and with wings, six of them. <laughs> Can't imagine what that would sound like. And they shouted so loud that they shook the foundation of the temple. And Isaiah is just terrified in that passage. You know, if we didn't have passages like that where these prophets get to look into the spirit realm, we wouldn't know about any of these things. What's the first words out of every angel's mouth? Stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. You know, because they're terrifying. When they show up, they frighten people. Even Zechariah the priest, the father of John the Baptist, was shaking, was terrified by the angel that showed up. Uh, but we don't know what all these creatures are. And when the people in Corinth were told to cover their heads when they prophesy, see, the women would shave their heads in worship of Aphrodite. So God said, when they come into the church, these women who are bald-headed, tell them they need to cover their hair cover their head. Now, if they have long hair, he says, that's a woman's glory, and that's okay. But if they have no hair, if their face, if their head is shaved, they need to cover their heads to show that they're in submission to the men of the church. And then they can pray and prophesy. And you read 1 Corinthians 11, you'll see that women may pray and prophesy as long as they're under the authority of the men. That's what the veil is to show. Now, see, and Paul goes on there in chapter 6, I mean, uh, in, uh, in chapter 8, and says, the reason women cover their heads is for the angels. First time I read that, I thought, what? Because angels have levels of authority, levels of submission. They have a hierarchy of being. And so our level of submission, according to the Scripture, God is the head of Christ, Paul says. Christ is the head of the man. The man is the head of the woman. So if a woman who is bald-headed prays or prophesies, she dishonors her head, that is, her husband. You follow? So the purpose of order in the church is so we don't offend the angelic beings because they have perfect order in their ranks. We don't know a lot about them, but we do know some of them. And Paul names some of them right here. Let's look at the 10th verse of the 6th chapter of Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Now, I like the, the actual Greek text here. It says, be strong in the, in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You know, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What's our struggle against? Look what he said. Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, 
and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Four categories of evil here that our struggle is against. Our struggle is against the temptations that come through the spirit realm. Now, after they have nailed us a bunch of times and we have sinned, then James says we're led astray by our own flesh, by our own personal lusts, instead of by the angelic beings, by these fallen beings. You know, Satan tempts people in the areas of their greatest weaknesses. But once you've fallen enough, Satan doesn't have to mess with you anymore because you're addicted to it. Your flesh tells you what to do. And that's what sin does. Sin gains rulership over us. And it does it because it's a spiritual problem. And it comes from the spiritual realm. So I want you to see what he says here. He tells us to be strong. That is a command. Not in ourselves, but be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the full armor of God. This is, you know, it's, he's talking about God's power and God's armor here so far. And then he says, it's our struggle. It's our battle. It's his power, his armor, but it's our struggle. And our struggle is against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now remember earlier we talked about God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places? Remember that? If we're seated in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians chapter 2, then these satanic beings here have access to us because they're also in the heavenly places. They have not been kicked out into the lake of fire yet. That hasn't happened yet. Spiritual beings still have access to God. Read the first two chapters of Job. Satan is there with the angels. God singles him out. He talks to him. Um, these beings have access to God. And this is why we need the full armor of God. To stand up against the devil. I don't, you know, I don't know what it would be worth to you to take the time to go through the, the names here of these four beings. But these are spiritual powers that are beyond our control. I think there are some spiritual powers in this country, uh, over this country, that have gained control of some areas that we can't deal with. I don't know what's going to happen to our economy. You know, I don't know what's going to happen to our nation. If something happens to our economy, the whole world will go. You already know what's going on in Europe if you're watching the news. At least five major countries right now in Europe are going to go bankrupt if, there, if something doesn't happen. And we're already, how many trillion? 16 point some trillion dollars. I don't even know what that means. When you start talking about millions and billions and trillions, that's just out of sight. That's just... It's uh, something like uh, $50,000 per person, man, woman, and child in the United States. 50000 bucks 
if all of us could give everything we make for two or three years to the government, we might be able to pay this debt off, but we wouldn't be able to live, of course. Certainly wouldn't be able to keep up our, our level of living. Well, our warfare is a spiritual warfare. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. The Christian's warfare is spiritual, not physical. We're not against some other denomination or some other group. Uh, we're not against flesh and blood at all. But our struggle is against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then Paul goes on. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. You know, don't leave any part of it out. So that when the day of evil comes, that is, when you're faced by these evil powers in the spirit realm, you may able to be able to stand your ground, he says. And after you've done everything to stand, Stand firm then. Four times he used the word stand here in this passage. We stand, as I said the first night, we're told to stand because we already have the victory. Because if you follow Jesus and believe in him, if you're trying to bring your life into harmony with Jesus, stand against the devil. And God will give you the power to do that. Now let's look at it. Put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then. Here's the first thing. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now that's not exactly what the Greek text says. The Greek text says with the girdle of truth belted around your loins now, what's that mean? The girdle of truth was a, well, the girdle for a Roman soldier was a long piece of cloth that's folded over three or four times, and then it's about this wide, you know, several layers of cloth, and it's laid across here. It's very long, maybe 10 feet or 12 feet, and they wrap it around here, come out through the legs, and pull it up underneath so they can, uh, they can stand with their skirts all the way down to their feet, to the tops of their sandals, until they're ready to go to war. And then you grab the ends of that thing and pull it, and your skirts go whoop, right up here around the big muscles of the body. The buttocks and the thigh muscles, all the power of the, of the body is right here. Uh, the scripture in the Old Testament talks about, you know, smiting them hip and thigh. You probably heard that. Hip and thigh, you break somebody's hip, he's out of the fight. You break his thigh bone, he's gone. You know, uh, this is the power of the body. The most powerful part of the body, the most powerful muscles in the body, right there. But that area is also the weakest area of the body, the sexual area. And when Paul talks about putting on the, the girdle of truth, wrapping it around several times here, and bringing it up underneath, He's talking about protecting. He's talking about truth in sex. This is a girdle of truth. He's talking about truth in the area of sex. I was in a uh, early Monday morning, 6 o'clock in the morning, meeting with a bunch of ministers that I did for every two weeks uh, for several years. And we did a study on this, these items of armor. And we didn't have any taboos. We talked about everything. And we had a couple visitors come in one Sunday 
who were ministers in the area. And they came in, and when they heard what we were talking about, the sexual needs and the sexual frustrations and the sexual problems, the sexual sins, they sat through the whole meeting like this. They were very threatened. But the rest of us had already been talking about these things, and we weren't bothered so much by it. And the guy that was leading it was the dean of the school. And he helped us see that the area where we are the strongest is also the area where we're the weakest. And guys, you know, every year I, my wife gets tired of me saying this, but I'm 71, and every year I think my juices are going to dry up, and I'll quit having, you know, sexual thoughts and things like that. Hadn't happened. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Um, I've always been thank thankful that I'm heterosexual, you know, that, that that's what I'm interested in. I've always liked the ladies. But you have to learn to look at their faces. And ladies, ladies have to dress so men will look at their faces. Because some women dress in such a way, you know, if we follow the advice of the people who set the style for this country, you know that almost all the style setters are homosexual. They turn women into clothes racks and make them look ridiculous. They make them walk ridiculously. Uh, it's silly. It's ridiculous. And guys, if we don't control ourselves, if we don't have truth in the area of sex, if you need somebody to talk to, find somebody to talk to them. Because this, look at this. This is the first item of armor. This is the most powerful part of the body. We must control this part. We must have truth in the sexual area. Put on the girdle of truth. Notice what the next one is. The breastplate of righteousness. Now the breastplate in Roman soldiers has a container. The, the breastplate container uh, is a container for the chest and shoulders. But it has a stob that goes down inside that belt to hold it in place. So if you don't have the belt of truth, you can't have your heart covered with righteousness. See, this is a breastplate of righteousness to cover the heart. Guard your heart, Proverbs says, because out of it come all the issues of life. It's our inner nature that's being protected by righteousness. If we have the girdle of truth on. The next one, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. See, the gospel brings peace in the midst of warfare. What, what peace does the gospel bring? The other F word, okay? Forgiveness. That's the peace the gospel brings. Forgiveness. If we could get the Arabs to forgive the Jews, that'd be the end of the conflict. And if we could get the Jews to forgive the Arabs. If we could give, get the uh, different uh, tribal divisions to forgive each other. You know, the Arabs within themselves have several tribal divisions. Several different kinds of Muslims. Several different teachings within them. And they hate each other just as much as... I'm reminded 
of what God said about Ishmael, who was the father of the Arabs. God said he'll be a wild donkey of a man with his hand against every man and every man's hand against him. And boy, that's true. You know, you can see it. They're the most miserable people, so filled with hate. And they don't realize that forgiveness is available to them. Now, some of the Muslims, some of the so-called Palestinians, have become Christians. And some of the Jews in Israel have become Christians. But they can never get together because the others would kill them. Isn't it sad? The gospel brings peace. He talks about outfit your feet with the gospel of peace. Roman soldiers wore sandals that were strapped all the way up to underneath the knee so they would not come off. Driven through from the top were hobnails, long nails that would stick down into the ground when they took a stand. And they would cover those with layer after layer after layer of leather to protect the feet of the soldiers so they wouldn't feel nail heads. But buddy, you take a step in one of those things, it's almost like a the type of uh, cleats they use in football. You know, the deeper the soil, the longer the cleats you need. And these soldiers could take a stand and nobody was going to move them. And they had weaponry that was incredible. The breastplate first. I mean, the, uh, the uh, girdle first, then the breastplate focused down into that. And then you have your feet outfitted with the gospel of peace. Then it says, in addition to this, take up the shield of the faith. Now, shield of the faith is not a buckler. It's not a little shield that fits on the arm. But it's a body shield made of wood, covered with leather, soaked in the water before the fight. And it had a hook on the back of it. And again, you would hook it into that girdle of truth. And it would cover from under the eyes to the top of the feet. So you have this big wooden thing soaked in water, so when the flaming arrows of the evil one come, they stick in that leather and just fizzle and go out. Because the shield of the faith, the faith protects us completely. We're not even going to need the breastplate of righteousness if we have faith. Because faith covers it all. It covers the entire body. And then he says, take the helmet of salvation. This is the part, see, God wore the helmet of salvation in the Old Testament. Go back and read in Isaiah, and you'll see that God put on this. He put on the girdle also. He put on the breastplate also in the Old Testament. Isaiah talks about many of these items of armor. But here, when you put on this helmet of salvation, he's talking about what we think about. You know, uh, Colossians, the Apostle Paul says in chapter 3, set your minds on things above. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You know, we've got to realize that our minds must be focused someplace other than this world. He says, think about things above, not the things of earth. When I think of the things of earth, when I go to bed, I worry and I don't sleep. But if I can learn to focus my attention on where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, if you want a picture to think of, I'm a picture kind of a guy. I think of pictures. 
read Revelation 4 and 5 and it'll blow your socks off. There's a picture there that God wants us to see when we want to worship. If you think of that picture in those two chapters, Revelation 4 and 5, you will understand the throne room of God. This is the area where we need to be thinking about. Focusing our minds on scripture. Focusing our minds on things above. Not on things of the earth. Are you a warrior? My dad was a warrior. My younger brother was a warrior. Both of them have died. Job, in his book, says, the very thing I dreaded has come upon me. If you're filled with dread, if you worry a lot, stop it. It's a sin. Jesus says three times. He's not in the habit of repeating commands. But three times he says, stop being anxious. Stop being anxious. Read the sixth chapter of Matthew. Stop being anxious about tomorrow. We've got to stop worrying. Why? Because it's not good for us. It's a sin. If you, if you tend to worry, stop that and think about heavenly things. Think about what Christ has done for us. Think about where he's seated at the right hand of God. The scripture says over and over, he's seated there interceding for us. He's seated there praying for us. Jesus never has a thought that's not about somebody else. We're more important to him than anything else. If he has any thoughts other than about us, it's about his father. So if you wear this shield of the faith, you're covered, you're protected. The faith, you know Latin? The faith is the sine qua non of being a Christian. It's the thing without which you can't be a Christian. Faith is the absolute for being a Christian. And once you have faith, then you have to learn love. And love is helping people. The helmet of salvation, and then he says the sword of the Spirit. I talked about this a little bit the other night. sword of the Spirit, which is the spoken word of God. It's not the Bible. It's the Bible in you. Coming out of you. Take up, he says, the shield, the, uh, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. A two-edged sword, less than 18 inches long, with a hook on the end. And the sword is sharp on both sides, cuts both ways. It's a sacrificial dagger. And the hook on the end is to hook the guts and pull them out. It's for a sacrifice. You know, they reach in and hook the guts and pull it out of the animal. They would use it to, when they conquered the enemy and wanted to destroy them, they would rip up pregnant women and, you know, rip the guts out of everybody. It's just a horrible implement, a horrible weapon. It's the most powerful offensive weapon of the whole arsenal. In fact, it's the only offensive weapon we have. This is what scares Satan silly, the spoken word of God. Memorize passages in the Bible that have to do with your sins. And instead of thinking about your sin, thinking about the temptation, think about the passage you've memorized. And you can run through that. You know, we're all sinners. I'm aware of that. But our job as Christians is to stop sinning. It's so simple. 
I've never heard anybody tell me this. Nobody says stop sinning. But that's the message of the New Testament. Our purpose is to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to overcome by the Spirit of God. And the sword of the Spirit, which is a terrifying weapon, is the spoken word of God. And Satan will run from that. Resist the devil. And he will run from you, James says. So the sword of the Spirit is the spoken word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and keep on praying for all the saints. First John chapter 5, John says, if we pray for one another, we can actually give life to one another. Intercessory prayer is powerful. John says it this way, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin that is not unto death, What's a sin that's not, well, what's a sin that's unto death? Excuse me? Yeah, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is rejection of Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit tells everybody Jesus is the Son of God. Rejecting that is blasphemy of the Spirit. So disbelief is the sin unto death. All other sins are not to death. And that's why John says, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin that's not unto death, he will ask and he will give to him life. If we pray for our brothers, we can actually send life out to our brothers. Intercessory prayer is powerful. It's what Jesus is doing at God's right hand. And according to Ephesians and according to Romans, the Holy Spirit is also interceding for us. The Holy Spirit's in us interceding with God and Christ is at the right hand of God in heaven interceding with God. How can we lose? You know, God is the uh, judge, and our defense lawyer is his son. How can we lose? I love the gospel in four words over in Romans 8. God is for us. And he goes on and says, hey, if God's for us, who can be against us? Pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Go over to Romans chapter 8. I, I try to let Scripture interpret itself as much as possible. Romans chapter 8. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know, Tim. You're with Jesus. Jesus. That's it. Yeah. If if the Son of God is on our side, if He died for us, He will take our prayers to the Father. We don't need some other intercessor. We've got the the Holy uh, the Holy One. You know, we've got the what is He called over in uh, Hebrews? the high priest, the, the high priest who has sat down. You know, one of the whole points of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. The high priests in Israel never sat down. 
because their work was never done. On the Day of Atonement, they stood for 24 hours doing the work of God in the tabernacle. And never sat down because the work was never finished. Every year they'd have to offer that same sacrifice again. But when Jesus offered his sacrifice and ascended on time, he sat down because that's it. Once and for all, he did it. Go to Romans 8, verse 26, talking about the praying in the Spirit. Uh, first, verse 23, he says, not only so, but we ourselves, verse 23, who, do, uh, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan eagerly as we await our, our adoption, which is the redemption of our bodies. We groan inwardly in the Spirit, awaiting our adoption, which is the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies, ultimately, we talked about this before, will go to dust. Go back ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Uh, we will die. The body dies. But the spirit, what's inside us, lives on. When Jesus was on the cross dying, he didn't say, Father, into your hands I commit my soul. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's the spirit that lives on. The spirit inside us. God keeps us alive. That's who we are. Not the body. The body is how we recognize each other. But the spirit is who we are. And then verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. The Holy Spirit interceding for us in our prayers. When we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit interprets our prayers. He carries them beyond what we could say. Because in our ignorance, we don't know what to say. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Pray in the Spirit for one another, and the Holy Spirit will interpret your prayers to God. Pray fervently. I hope you pray for Harold and Cindy, for the leaders of the church. I hope you pray for the church. We've talked about this. Praying for the church is probably the only thing we can do to help the church grow. And there may be some other things that will help, but praying will bring God's blessing on the church. The Holy Spirit will interpret our prayers, and God wants his church to grow. Don't think God doesn't want the church to grow more than you do. He wants you to grow more than you do. God is behind everything we do. So, Put on the full armor of God. The passage we've looked at says it's God's armor, it's God's power, and it's God's victory. But it's our battle. We're the ones who have to fight. And it's fighting in a spiritual warfare. Let's pray, and then I'll open it up to see if you have any questions. Thank you, Father, that you know our prayers. Even when we don't know what to say or what to pray. If we're open to you and if we're praying in the Spirit, your Holy Spirit, with groans that we can't hear or understand, interprets our prayers to you. And Father, we groan inwardly, waiting for this physical body this tent we live in 
to fall away and for the Spirit to be released. And we long for the day when you give us an immortal body, eternal in the heavens, when the mortal puts on immortality and the corruptible puts on incorruption. And you will swallow up death forever. We long for that day. And we pray, Father, that sometime in the future, all of us in this room will be gathered at your throne in continual, eternal praise of you and of the one you sent to redeem us. We're so grateful that you have the power to conquer and that Christ has already led all these powers in the spirit realm into captivity. We look forward one day to rule with you in your image, in your son's name. Amen. Um, take two or three minutes if you have questions or comments. Yes, ma'am. Speak up good and loud because it's hard for me to hear up here. Satan's attack. Yeah, I believe that it's his power that makes us strong enough. And it's his armor that protects us. And I, I didn't mention this as we went through the items of armor, but there's nothing for the backside. You know, he doesn't want you ever to turn from Satan. Right. He wants you just to stand. Four times he says stand. Right. Stand where you are and hold on to your faith. And, say, and if you speak the word at Satan, there is absolutely no thing he can do to you. And one of the things I've learned over the years is when your time is the hardest in your life, when you've reached the lowest point and you still serve God, Satan can't do any more to you. You know, I think Job is an example of that. Jesus is an example of that. So we're only as strong as the words and how these things are pushed, right? So, so even if we have just a little bit of time to get attacked, it's just like, well, we got to, we got to, like when you're new, when you're, when you're new to Christ, you know, it's like those first 10 or 15 days that you first get into Christ, you know, you, then you, you kind of like want to do things again. The beginning of your Christian experience. Right. It's like everything's all right for the first couple of days, you know, a new Christian gets on the Tell me about it. <laughs> you know, and then all of a sudden, it's like a big attack. You know? That's it. Like sometimes we'll have a trial in our house, and it seems like an entire depression is just sitting on the house. It's just, you know, God can drop That's spirit warfare. Yep.
there's a euphoria, there's a great happy feeling, and then real life comes back in, and you're facing, str facing struggles. My friend Scott Binkley became a Christian, he was making 72,000 a year, this was back in the 80s. And uh, that was big bucks in the 80s. And he was working for an outfit that they call, you know, a headhunter, a person that looks for people for jobs, but he lied all the time. They called it rusing in the business. He would call and say, I am so-and-so with such-and-such -such company, we're looking for somebody to do this, you, you know. And whenever he became a Christian, he couldn't do that. So his pay went from 72000 to 30000 the next year, and then he lost his job. The place he was working for went belly up. And he came to me, and we spent almost a summer together. He, he was questioning me all the time. Why is this happening to me? What's causing this? And I said, this is just a test. This is Satan attacking you in your weakest point, and God standing on the other side, on your side. We have to trust him. It's his power. It's not ours. And we can pray to destroy these negative things that are over us. We can pray to God, and in time, he'll break it down. The more we pray, the more chance we have of conquering in the spirit realm. Yes. <clears throat> right Geneva exactly right the scripture and prayer it's so simple you know we talk about Bible and prayer and that's what it is and I think sometimes if we couple prayer with fasting it'll be even more powerful in God's eyes any other comments or questions Yeah, that's right. Yeah. After all, we're not in control. Well, absolutely. absolutely. God is in control. My, my question, real quick, and I'm content with yes or no answer. We'll talk later, but I don't want your answer, all right? 
the deal about uh, uh, Romans 6.6 with grow, diversity, and express, does that have anything to do with speaking in tongues? Oh, I don't think, I don't think that has to do with speaking in tongues. I think when they're talking about speaking in tongues, the only place we have that talked about is in 1 Corinthians and Acts. Oh, physical healing? <laughs> it's first of all spiritual healing because it's talking about forgiveness of sins. Right. But secondarily, it does apply to physical, to physical healing to because his stripes were physical. By his stripes, we are healed. You know, I think God's still in the healing business. I believe in praying <clears> But it's not I some miraculous thing where I don't heal you. Heal. Yeah. If that's all you're claiming, you're missing the point of the passage. Because he says, you know, he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. He's talking about spiritual sin, spiritual problems. Correct. Any other comments or questions? Mickey. Oh man, that is a pet peeve of mine, because there's a back door to a church just like there's a front door, and if, if you're not keeping the people you're winning, you know, Jesus' great commission, he says, go make disciples, teaching them, and baptizing them, and teaching them. It's all about that, after you've made a disciple, we must teach. And we have to keep teaching. And so, yeah, I think we're responsible as a church, as Christians, to take those who are beginning Christians and help them, strengthen them in the faith and help them to understand that God is with them. God is behind everything we do. I think that's the hardest thing for a Christian, a new Christian to learn, is that God is really on our side. And if he's on our side, we can't lose. Anything else there from the spirit warfare or the, <clears throat> the sword of the spirit? Uh, this has been a great week. My wife and I have really enjoyed it. Uh, the last three or four days, we have rested more than we have in many days. And we haven't done, we haven't cooked any food or done any dishes. <laughs> now, I know Geneva's done some dishes. We ate twice at her house, and I want to thank you for your, hosti I mean your hospitality. Uh, once, and we ate twice, yeah. Good stuff. And thank you all for uh, the work you've done here to get the food ready and all the things that we've shared. It's been a real blessing, and thank you so much. Uh, Paul and I both have had a great time. And we love you and look forward to coming back next year. I don't know what we're going to study, but we'll study something. Maybe uh, 1 Corinthians. Well, there's a lot more, a lot more in there than we talked about.
I have a class. I have an Ephesians class at, at Dallas where I teach two and a half weeks for 16, uh, two and a half hours for 16 weeks on Ephesians. It's an awesome book. There's way more than what we talked about. We just kind of hit the hem of the garment. But that's the way it is in Bible study. There's always more. I think God revealed himself in the written word, among other expressions of himself, because there's no end to it. I wrote my master's thesis. I think I told you this, 147 pages. I had over 1,000 pages of notes, and they said, well, we won't accept more than 150 pages. So I had to go back and simplify and clarify and reduce it, and 147 pages on the word hope, four-letter word. Uh, incredible depth in, in the study of that word. And I just touched the word. I didn't really go deeply into the word. So imagine studying, there, there are uh, a little over 6,300 words in the New Testament in Greek and a little over 8,300 in the Old Testament in Hebrew. Imagine taking one word and studying it all the way to the bottom every time. It would take you forever. You know, and God is like that. God is infinite. Let's pray. Again, Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for the living word, Jesus Christ, who revealed you to us, who had a name and an address, and people could walk up to him and ask him any question. And we're so ashamed, Father, that he had to die for our sins. We thank you that he loved us and was willing to give himself up for us. Help us, Father, to return that love to you. Help it not to be just passionate love, but a commitment that will help us to obey you in every part of our lives. When we fail, Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Ronnie. Yeah, thank you very much. You betcha, bud. Wonderful stuff. Enjoyed it. I missed you last night. We were baseball.